Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... Broad Daylight On July 10th, 1981, Ken Rex McElroy was shot to death on the main street of Skidmore, Missouri. Forty-five townspeople watched. His wife, sitting next to him in the truck, identified the gunman. In spite of three grand jury investigations and an FBI probe, no indictments were ever issued, no trial held, and the town of Skidmore has protected the killer with silence ever since. In broad daylight, a murder in Skidmore, Missouri, is an Edgar Allan Poe True Crime Award winner written by Harry N. McLean. This riveting, contemporaneous book takes us inside the minds and souls of the townspeople of this small Midwestern town as they grapple with a monster in their midst. Join me as I sit down and chat with Harry N. McLean. Well, I was, I'm a lawyer and I was practicing law in Denver and I'd always wanted to be a writer. And one day I saw a, uh, I think it was a little Newsweek clip, and it had a picture of a guy holding a little girl on his, on his lap and looking directly into the camera. And the headline said, Vigilante Killing in Missouri Town. And uh, it wasn't much of an article. It was one they had outlined in red. But the essence of it was that the town had taken the law into its own hands and killed uh, Ken McElroy, who had supposedly terrorized the whole, the whole well, actually all of Northwest Missouri. And uh, they were on the look for the killers. And I was interested in it. I always wanted to write a book. And I kind of, I'm from Nebraska. So I thought, well, that's just right across the river from where I grew up. I'm going to keep an eye on this. And, uh, and then I saw that they had uh, convened a federal grand jury in Kansas City to uh, solve the murder. And they brought all the, all the townspeople down there. And it, was, it was pretty obvious by then that there had been a lot of witnesses. Every account of it said there were anywhere between 20 and 50 people who witnessed the shooting and the death of Ken McElroy. So I've, I've run a federal grand jury before and, and they're pretty intimidating instruments to the law. And I told myself if that grand jury disbands and does not indict anybody. I'm going to write a book on this case. Uh, because then it reached the level of being extraordinary. I mean, his wife was sitting right next to him when he was shot, and she turned around and saw the shooter. So you had eyewitness testimony. And sure enough, I kind of forgot about it. And one day, about six or seven months later, there's a little clip down there that says grand jury in McElroy case disbands no no indictment. So I thought, well, <laughs> you told yourself you were going to do it. So 
Now get in your car and head out to Missouri and see what you can do. And what was uh, Skidmore, Missouri like uh, when you got there? No, I think one thing that's important to keep in mind is that Missouri was a slaveholding state. It did not join the Confederacy, but it was sympathetic to the Confederacy. And of course, you had some of the greatest outlaws in the West come out of Missouri after the end of the Civil War. So there is that kind of independent Southern, we don't like a lot of law in our town, we'll take care of our own problems um, attitude. And there was not a strong city government, town government, there was not a strong county government. Um, people kind of, you know, kept to themselves and took care of their own problems. And it was kind of the price that they paid for it because a lot of other communities would have dealt with McElroy other ways. But, um, uh, you know, this, this, kind of, this kind of iconoclastic way, and there were also, these towns were really isolated. Um, it, it was only 18 miles from Maryville, Skidmore was, but it was a long 18 miles. And the back roads of Missouri, Northwest Missouri, a lot of them weren't numbered. They didn't have letters, they didn't have names. They didn't have numbers. They just kind of roamed around out there. And that's the way, that's the way people liked it. The, the actual time. town in 1981, which is when he was shot to death, um, was about 450 people. There was a time, once again, it was when the railroad went through around the turn of the century that it was up around four or 5,000 people, had hotels and, and uh, opera houses and restaurants and all that. And then as, uh, as the railroads died away and Maryville, the county seat, got... Uh, Walmart and so forth, these little towns struggled even more and, and um, lost population and so forth. And so it was, uh, but it, it was all kind of by itself. It, you didn't go to Skidmore unless you were going to Skidmore. It wasn't really on the way to anywhere. And you had a feeling of isolation when you, when you drove in there. It was a, uh, a, a very kind of telling feeling when you got there. I don't know if it would have happened in a larger town or a town closer to a big city. It was kind of all by itself out the woods. And the farms there, like the farm, I ended up living with the farm family there when I got the story. Um, they were fourth generation farmers, same land. So you had that kind of, that kind of feel to it. Everybody there had been there a couple of generations, most of them. So, um... Paint us a picture of the uh, antagonist in the story, as it were, uh, Ken Rex McElroy. Yeah, his family was one of the few around there that wasn't generational. His family came from, from Kansas, and he was one of 14 children. He was the 13th. Um, and they were on the outside of town. They were not particularly successful farmers. Um, they were kind of at the bottom of the economic scale, which has been given as an excuse, and I think rightfully so. He was, uh, he was resentful of wealthier farmers um, and people he thought were looking down on him, and that kind of set up this paranoid pathology that he had. Um, but he wasn't, I, I don't think he was literate. I think he could sign his name, and that was about it. 
but he was a very cunning uh, reader of human personalities and weaknesses in the system. So he, he was a bully. He was a bully from uh, sixth or seventh grade on. It didn't get particularly serious. I mean, he would take knives on the bus and threaten people and so forth. But uh, it didn't get particularly serious until he got 17 or 18 and started uh, really hunting younger girls and making it clear to everybody that, including his family members and the law and the town, that the law didn't really apply to him. And he rode his horse where he wanted to, where he wanted to, and, and kind of uh, was his own was his own person, you know. And uh, fair to say he was uh, somewhat a ladies' man? There were, I counted once, over 30 women that had had children by him. Uh, and just to make it clear, he roamed all over a 13-county area of northwest Missouri. He lived outside of Skidmore and terrorized them the worst. But he had, he had that whole corner of Missouri under his thumb by the time he was shot, um, including lawmen who were scared to go up against him. Um, but his, he always had a gun. He always had a, a rifle or a shotgun in his truck. But so did, so did most of it. Well, um, but, but the women um, were allies of his and they would, um, he would take stolen hogs or cattle or chemicals and hide them on their farms until things cooled down. And then they would take them to auction and sell them. And they also had children by them. Um, and almost every time I've gone back, if I've gone around to some of these other towns, somebody will come up to me and say, Kenny was my dad, you know. Who was your mom? Well, it would be some name I never heard of before. Um, it was, it, it, you know, so he was very, he was very active that way. Now, he, the women that he, that he focused on were almost always younger. The one you mentioned earlier was 12. He first was sleeping with her mother and then sleeping with her. And she was the one who ended up running with him in the end and was sitting next to him when he was, when he was shot. But they were usually younger and pretty, but they were from the lower economic scale. They weren't, they didn't come from strong families. Uh, he could sense weakness and he could sense who he could terrorize and who he couldn't. Um, like this one, Trina, that we're talking about, who just died recently. Um, her, her parents gave up. They wouldn't stand up to McElroy. Uh, he burned their house down and they fled to Arkansas. So then he had her all to himself. And when he died, he had Alice Wood and Trina living out there with him with about 13 or 14 kids. We'll go back a little bit. Um, he was at one point he was prosecuted for um, rape and child abuse and so forth because Trina was only 12 or 13 and he would take, he'd get her off the school bus and take her to a motel in St. Joe, so forth. So they finally got a DA who would stand up to him and prosecuted him. He was married to Sharon at that point. So he, he went to his Kansas City lawyer who becomes quite a character in the story and said, it's, it's true that, um, uh, that a wife can't testify against her husband. Yeah, that's true. So he divorced Sharon and forced Trina's parents into agreeing to her marrying him. 
So all 13 cases that were then had, had been brought against him were dismissed by the DA because without Trina, there wasn't any, there wasn't any case. So to answer your question, he was married to her at the time of his death, but that's how it came about. And uh, Harry, you should point out in the book um, very vividly that uh, Mr. McElroy was capable of some horrendous acts, um, but he also was the king of bluster in the sense that after a while, he didn't even actually do something, just threaten things. Um, but one of the um, excerpts in your book um, is an exchange he had um, with the um, minister of the town, uh, Minister Warren, which was, was believe it or, or not, uh, you know, if you take it on face value, was incredibly, incredibly threatening. If you keep on minding other people's business instead of your own, we're going to rape your wife in front of you, and then we're going to cut your little boy's sex organs off and make him eat them while you watch. We're going to tie you up and cut him into little pieces, and, uh, and then all of us are going to fuck your wife in front of you, and then we're going to kill you. Yeah, I mean, he, he followed through just enough that he had... Uh, he had he, he, he had a lot of credibility and you didn't know whether he was fooling with you or whether he was actually going to do it because it wasn't always rational. Uh, he would get hung up on something. And in that case, Tim Warren was the minister and he was he was um, giving solace to another victim, uh, the grocer. He was stopping who McElroy had shot and tried to kill. And he was just stopping by the grocer's house to see how he was doing. Well, McElroy spotted that. Then you're his enemy too. So that's why he stopped by Warren's house. So you could cross him and not even know it. Um, and in fact, what led to the whole thing was his uh, daughter, who also just died recently, going into a grocery store in Skidmore. And the... Uh, the woman who was owned the store uh, accused her, well, according to McElroy, accused her of stealing a jawbreaker. Um, she said, no, all, all, uh, Trina and the girl went in. And Trina said uh, that all she did was take it up and, you know, pick it up and kind of walk out. She wasn't stealing it. But anyway, that got back to McElroy, that his child had been accused of shoplifting. And that's what set the whole chain of events off and for about the next two years, which resulted in him being shot. So it, it was real, people just stayed out of his way. It was easier just to stay out of his way. I mean, I, I used to still get um, emails and phone calls from people about McElroy. And I had one the other day, the guy was about, probably about 65 and he was growing up. He was a boy when McElroy was was running and, uh, and he heard a bunch of, he heard a racket out in the, outside the house in the hog pen one night and he saw McElroy and he comes in and tells his dad, his dad says, uh, so dad, you know, Ken McElroy's out there stealing hogs. And he says, how many has he got? He said, uh, he's got, he's only got two. And he said, hell, let him go. It's not worth it. One of uh, McElroy's most um, brazen and um, serious assaults 
was on uh, someone he he knew well uh, by the name of uh, Romain Henry. Tell us about Romain Henry. Romain Henry was a farmer in the area, and McRoy caught him out on the street on the wasn't the street on the road uh, one day, and pulled a shotgun at out and went over to his truck. He stopped him and shot him, stuck the shotgun in his stomach and pulled the trigger and shot him. Um, and Romain ended up surviving this, but he never understood what was going on. Now, there were other people who had theories that they were both sleeping with the same woman and so forth, but, but Romain claimed up and down that he had no idea what he had done to cross, cross McElroy. I tell you, that's where the townspeople got really scared because they prosecuted McElroy for, um, it was an assault with attempt to, to kill. It wasn't attempted murder, but it was an assault charge. And Romaine Henry came in and testified, said, yeah, he, Ken McElroy came up, stuck the shotgun in my stomach, pulled the trigger. And yet he was acquitted by the jury. And so this led the people to believe and they were convinced then that he was going to get away with whatever he did because the law never, never handled him. Uh, they, they never got him convicted or if he did get convicted, you know, the, all of a sudden the case was dropped and no one ever heard of it again. I talked to two jurors. Uh, it wasn't in the it wasn't in the Romaine Henry case. It was in the, the eventual case, but he, no, I'm sorry. One of them was, was Romaine Henry and he, um, had other people talk to them. He always found somebody who knew each one of them and they would go talk to him and say, you know, things aren't good, you know, bad things are going to happen if he gets convicted. He also put, did things like put rattlesnakes in their mailboxes and so forth. So, um, and one, one juror just you know, in the Romanian Henry case said to me, it just, it wasn't worth it. I knew he could find out who I was and he tracked me down and, you know, I got a 10 year old daughter, maybe he'd get her too. So no way he was going to be convicted. And in fact, there was a judge even, I think maybe it was in the later case or I mean, there's so many or a, a civil case or whatever. I think his name might have been Wilson, but he said yeah. he recused himself because he said in another situation he had been threatened by McElroy and he took it seriously. And he said, you know, I'm, I don't know if he was doing it because he was afraid or more that it might come out that he was threatened. So he didn't want someone to say that he was acquitting or, or giving favorable treatment. But yeah. the bottom line was he terrorized a judge. Terrorized a judge and he, 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 burned his, uh, he burned his barn down. And that's when he ended up recusing himself. Now, I mean, everybody assumed it was McElroy who burned his barn down. Uh, Wilson sure assumed it, and he was scared of him. He just didn't want any, he just didn't want anything to do with him. Uh, and the prosecutor that was that was going to handle the eventual case um, ended up resigning and joining, going into the military and going into JAG. And they couldn't get anybody else to be the prosecutor. Uh, no one, no one wanted to do it. And finally, they found this young legal aid lawyer right out of a year out of law school who, did, who took the job and got, got the conviction. Now, the um, ultimate um, assault that, that um, McElroy actually, surprise, surprise, was convicted of was uh, against the uh, local grocer, uh, Bo Bowen Camp. Uh, why don't you tell us about Bo? He's starting to focus now more on Skidmore. It used to be he, he roamed anywhere, all over, and would you know, commit his crimes and terrorize people. He started to get into it with 
Skidmore and started doing things to get them more frightened, more terrorized, and more convinced that nobody was ever going to help them out. And, uh, and then the incident happened um, where Trina and one of, well, one of the daughters went in, another one stayed out at a pickup. And Mrs. Bowencamp owned the grocery store. And she was a very harsh woman, shall we put it that way? Uh, curmudgeonly, you know, just didn't put up with anything. And uh, she saw the, the little girl pick up the candy and Trina said, put the candy back. Well, the little girl put it back and they picked it up again and walked out with it. And uh, you just could have, anybody else would have let her go. Um, and even probably given her some more candy just to get her out of there. But not, not Mrs. Bonecamp. She goes, out, she says, hey, your daughter, you know, she's got that candy there. She's got it in her pocket. So Trina took the candy away, threw it down on the, on the table there and went out. Well, then they go back and tell McElroy what's happened. McElroy and Trina then come back into the store and he's waving a knife around and so forth and wants, wants Trina and, and Mrs. Bonecamp to go out into the street and have a fight and uh, get best going on it and so forth. Well, that started, that started the reign of terror on the Bowen camps and any friend of the Bowen camps, their neighbors, relatives, McElroy stayed on him. He drove by their house, three o'clock in the morning, fired off shotguns in the air. Uh, he would, he'd, he'd just follow him. Uh, on the street, he'd have his kids follow him. There'd be phone calls. And um, finally he, go, he goes into the grocery store. He goes into the back of the grocery store where Mrs. Bowencamp's husband, Bo, is working. He's the butcher. And he's the back of the store. He's cutting up cardboard boxes. McElroy sees three young boys right there in the alleyway and gives them two or three bucks to go away, to go inside the tavern. He then pulls out his uh, shotgun, walks up to the grocer and has some words with him. There's a little dispute as well with said, and then shoots him. And he's probably 15 yards, 15 feet away from it at the point. And the grocer just happens to move at the right moment or else it would have, it was aimed right at his head and his neck. Tears off the right side of his neck, he falls down and you know, he, he, he survives too. And uh, old Bo was a tough old guy. He, he stuck in there, he hung in there and he went to the hearings and he testified. And they were all, you know, McRoy rounded up all these phony witnesses like he always did. Um, but he, he got convicted and he was going to go to, he was going to go to jail. The town didn't believe it. They didn't think it was ever going to happen, but they were kind of coalesced around the fact that they had finally stood up to McRoy. Unfortunately, though, this was not the end of Ken McElroy or his reign of terror, was it? No, what happened was when he was convicted, the judge said, well, first of all, the judge turned him loose, which was stupid. Uh, now he's aggravated. And he put a uh, rule on him that he couldn't carry any weapons. So uh, that's like telling McElroy he can't breathe. So of course he goes into town with weapons and he's spotted by three people. And they call up the... Um, DA 
and says he's walking around here with guns now. He's going to shoot somebody again. And the DA says, okay, I'm going to have a bond revocation. We're going to revoke his bond because he's carrying weapons. Well, then these three people uh, have targets on their back and they know it. They've, they've stood up to him. But um, in the past, he shot people who stood up to him. And he's on the way to jail now. He's scared of going to jail, actually. And um, so they're, they're terrified of him. And he, he does um, confront one of the witnesses in a bar one day. He was a guy, he was an old World War II veteran, kind of a tough guy. And uh, he was the one who, who convinced the other ones to actually sign these affidavits as to what they'd seen. And he has an incident with him where he threatens him in the bar. And Pete Ward goes back home and gets his rifle and stands up at the top of the street and says, if he turns this way when it comes out, I'm going to shoot him. And I think he probably would have, but McElroy turned the other way and went on. So um, they've got 10 days to survive um, the town and these people before McElroy's revocation hearing. They do. They he, he, he's seen in streets, he's seen in alleys with uh, guns and so forth behind these people's houses. And also, you know, he had no compunction about threatening the law as well. Uh, in your book, you recount uh, a meeting that McElroy had on the street with two uh, law enforcement folks. Um, I want to quote from that. It says, um, later, as Stratton and Rhodes were talking, McElroy approached them looking Rhodes in the eye and said, you got an oak bookcase in your study that has a top shelf filled with books bound in leather. Three of the books are red, three are brown, and two are black. Saying nothing, Rhodes and Stratton turned and walked outside. He's never been in my house as far as I know. He's never been at the door, Rhodes said. He's right on the bookcase. And the, and the colors, but wrong on the number of books. The men went outside, and McElroy told them, well, I saw them through the scope on my high-powered rifle, a slight grin crossing his face. And a lot of it's just to scare them, and he does. And they're absolutely terrified for those 10 days, particularly the family of these three witnesses. So finally comes the day they're going to have the bond revocation hearing. And they say, let's get organized. Let's do something here because these three guys had got to drive 28 miles to the town where the trial was held and where the revocation will be held. They might not make it. Uh, and plus we want to show McRoy that we're standing together now, that he can't pick us off one by one, which is what he's always done in the past. So they get organized that night they're going to meet, they're going to get together down at the tavern in the morning with these three, and they're going to put a big cavalcade of cars. They're going to stick the three of them in the middle of it. They're going to get them up to this town. Well, that morning comes a phone call from, uh, I'm sorry, the next morning comes a phone call uh, from the DA. He says, um, we've continued the case for a week. And the people go, you know, uh, and this is what, you know, this, this is what sets it in action. They go, okay, look, um, we got to hang together here now. Let's, let's stay organized. 
Um, and they went up to the Legion Hall and they had a meeting. Now there's like 60 of them in there, all men. Um, and there's a great debate about what went on in there. Uh, but the result of it, well, I had several people tell me what, what, what did go on in there. But uh, the result of it was um, somebody, somebody in there went to McElroy's farm and said they're having a meeting about what they're going to do with you. So you do that to Ken McElroy, you know, you're asking for it. So he gets his wife, no weapons. He's a little smarter this time, goes into town. Then somebody tells the people in the Legion Hall, McElroy's come to town. So they know at this point, they either stand up to him and deal with him or, uh, or it's all over for him. If he wins this round, if 60 of them get in their cars and drive away because he's come into town, it would be a total disaster. So they march down the street and they go in, about two thirds of them go in the tavern, a third of them stay outside up the hill from his truck. A uh, couple of them are at the top of the hill with perfect views of what, of what happens. He's in there with his wife, they have a beer, the guys say, start saying stuff to him. They would never have said before, like, you know, you need to get on out of here. We don't want you around anymore and so forth. So Trina finally says, uh, let's get out of here, Ken. So they do. They get a six-pack of beer, a beer and go out, get in the truck. She sees the people in the street, and she has an inkling of what's going to happen. And um, she's been very clear. In, in every time she told the story to the police, to the FBI, to me about what happened. Um, she gets in the car, Ken gets in the car, Ken's driving. Uh, she senses it. He starts the engine. It's a big old Chevy Silverado and um, starts to light a cigarette. She looks around over her shoulder and sees Del Clement pull a 30-30 out of his pickup and cock it, and she yells at Ken, they're gonna shoot you. And he didn't do anything. He doesn't back up, he doesn't duck down. He continues to light his cigarette as if like, I don't think you guys can you know, do it. Um, and sure enough, in my view as Del Clement um, fires the 30-30, someone else picks up a 22 and fires that and Ken's head's pretty much blown to pieces by then. It, a lot of it flies uh, on, on his wife too, as well, pieces of his head and his teeth and so forth. And he's dead. And, and she is convinced they're gonna kill her too, because she has been riding with him for the last four or five years. And uh, somebody pulls her out of the truck and uh, takes her up to the bank. Well, to shorted a little bit, he sits there for about an hour and 20 minutes in his truck. Nobody calls the police. Nobody calls an ambulance. Finally, um, Trina goes back out to the ranch and tells his brother, and his brother calls the police. So it's about an hour and a half after the shooting, the law finally comes out there. And, uh, and there he's sitting there um, one of the more dramatic things that happens is he, when he gets hit, he falls forward and his head uh, hits the steering wheel and his foot presses down on the accelerator and stays like that. So you've got this terrible howling 
sound going on while he's bleeding to death. And pretty soon the truck starts to uh, drop all sorts of fuel and oil and so forth. And it's a really weird. And people are kind of watching it like, is, you know, is he really dead? They didn't, they didn't believe it. I mean, they would actually go up and look in there and make sure that he was dead or they drive by and actually had to convince themselves through their own eyes that he was dead. It wasn't good enough to hear somebody say, no, I saw the top of his head come off. They had to see him dead. And that's kind of where it, where it stuck. And of course, as you state, it's broad daylight, as in the title of the book, In Broad Daylight, A Murder in Skidmore, Missouri. Um, and there are, certainly the, the men involved are all witnesses and participants and other townspeople, I'm sure, were were close by if they didn't see the instant when after the shot happened and they're they're walking around. I mean, you know, they they are witnesses after the fact and sort of because of 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 the uh, uh, silence, almost I don't want to count it like the mafia, but, you know, because they are all involved and probably most of them felt there's nothing else we could do. Uh, there was no quote unquote witnesses were there. No, I mean, they, everybody knew who was out there and uh, the, the local cops formed kind of a committee from state patrol, sheriff, marshals, and they, uh, they went and talked to every one of these people. They found him. They found him out on their tractors. They found him at home. They found him in church. And every one of them said, well, you know, I, I, I heard the first shot and I jumped down between the trucks or I ran between the buildings. So by the time I looked up, there wasn't anybody there anymore. And... Uh, uh, nobody said, now Trina always said who, who the killers were. And they got to one other person, uh, Frankie Aldrich, who admitted under pressure that in fact it was Del Clement. Well, Del Clement's lawyer came to see him that night and the next morning he, he had forgotten that he had actually seen the killing. So it just kind of went on like that and everybody started, and then the FBI came into it. And that's, that's to go back to me, that's what got me because if you send these FBI agents into, you know, against those farmers and they can't crack them, then you really got a story, you know? Because these guys at most are, uh, have high school educations. And, um, you know, those agents know all sorts of techniques to get them to talk. And, uh, and they couldn't, they couldn't bust one of them out of 45 to 50 witnesses. It was absolutely amazing to, when, when you realize that uh, how silent that, and the other part of the silence was, I don't think they ever talked about, about the killing amongst themselves. Uh, they didn't have to, they went home. I don't even think they told their wife or their kids what they saw, most of them. And they just got back on their tractors and they started harvesting their corn, you know? Um, I'm sure some of them did talk about it when they drank and so forth, but there was no like conspiracy where they all got together and said, you know, don't say anything. Here's what we want you to say. And of course, um, after that, uh, if not before, the uh, national press, of course, descended upon uh, Skidmore and 60 Minutes, uh, uh, lots of uh, lots of news coverage uh, during uh, during this time. I also made a movie for my book uh, called In Broad Daylight. And um, Brian Dennehy, the actor who died 
a year or so ago, played McElroy. Um, Marsha Gay Harding, who um, got a Best Actress Award for Pollock, playing Pollock's wife, was Trina. Um, Cloris Leachman, who just died, played the grocer's wife, who got into it with McElroy. And Chris Cooper uh, played um, the only cop in Northwest Missouri who would stand up to McElroy and who captured him after he shot the grocer. So Trina, of course, identifies uh, Del uh, Clement as one of the shooters, uh, probably the one who uh, provided the kill shot of Ken McElroy. Um, so you would, of course, assume that uh, this this would be a slam dunk, but uh, this is Skidmore. In, I was convinced that the prosecutor in Maryville wanted to. He was the one who convicted McElroy of shooting the grocer. And I think he, he was, he was, he would have, he wanted to charge Del Clement with the killing. And he had Trina testify in front of the grand jury and they just didn't believe her. Well, didn't believe her. I think they believed her. I think they knew who Ken McElroy was and said, you know, are you serious? You really want us to put his killer in jail after his 30, 40 year reign of terror? I just think they just didn't like to do it. But the grand jury in Kansas City didn't know all this stuff. So that's a completely different story. It's been, it's been kind of a mystery. If you tamper with federal grand jury members, you can, be, you can get in serious trouble. So I kind of left that alone. Um, so uh, Harry, at this point, I'd like to talk a little bit about how you put the book together. Um, it, it is an interesting story all by itself. I went down about nine or 10 months afterwards. It was fresh and I was really fortunate. I, I'll make it real brief, but I ended up um, becoming close friends with um, members of a leading family in town. They had five sons and it's a long story how it happened, but I ended up pretty much uh, being accepted into that family. And I had my own, my own room and you know my own place where my car was parked, place at the table. And they all supported my effort. Uh, without that, I don't think I ever would have done it because that town was wound up tight as a drum. They weren't talking to anybody. And um, gradually, I lived there for three years. Gradually, I became a part of the town. And I was going to the pumpkin show. I was judging dance contests. You know, I was selling tickets to the Mother's Day Bazaar. I was, I was one of the people there, you know. I spoke to Trina. By this time... She had, she had recovered, you know, he got her when she was 12 and she was about 22 then. And she sounded like a 12 year old. It sounded like she has got stuck in that age, but she had hooked up with a, with a, she was down in, in the Ozarks and she'd hooked up with a really nice guy. He was there for the interview and they had gotten married and she was making a second run at life and she made it. Um, she had two or three kids with this guy straightened out. I kind of left her alone um, after that interview because I thought, you know, give her a shot, you know, and she did. She, she led a pretty good life. Um, and she died also about two or three years ago from, from cancer. But I felt like she eventually out, outgrew that trauma of her childhood. And you also uh, spoke with Alice. Well, I spent hours, hours with Alice and her, and her kids, and she was very um, explicit about McRoy's activities and him beating her 
pretty badly and um, coercing her. And then, you know, finally ending up with Trina, but demanding that she stay with them with the kids and so forth. He was extremely brutal to all these women, uh, including his kids. The kids stuck by him, uh, but it was almost like they had to. You know, later I found out that some of his daughters were, uh, were abused by him as well. Um, Alice, it was funny, she, I don't, I don't think she knew what was gonna, exactly what she was saying. She was very detailed about what he did to her. And uh, we all went on Oprah, you know, they, they, showed, they showed the movie to the Oprah audience and then we came out and it was myself and Alice and, and uh, McElroy's lawyer and a couple of his kids. And she was, she looked at me and I, I, she was extremely upset over the book, I could tell and the details that were in there. I think she, uh, I think she felt like I had misled her or something, um, but I didn't, I taped everything. I, I think she didn't realize the story she was telling and the impact it was gonna have on her kids. So it was a kind of a tense moment with her. She was a very, she was a very nice kind of sweet woman in a way, you know, she wasn't a drunk. She didn't abuse her kids. She just got hooked up with this guy who would never let her go. Harry, as I, I told you before we started recording today that um, I've read the book twice and am still processing it, uh, processing the story and trying to see who, you know, if there's such a thing, whose side I come down on. Um, uh, how, did, how did you approach uh, the writing and, and even how do you feel since? I went in neutral. And what I did tell the people there was, I will tell your side of the story. He had gotten away with all these cases and so forth, and they knew it, but they couldn't prove it. They couldn't go into the files and, and demonstrate it. And I said, I will look at every brush he's ever had with the law, and uh, we'll see where it gets us, you know. Um, I'm not out to name the killer, and I didn't name the killers. So... I was very sympathetic to them in the end because of their well-founded belief that the law was not going to protect them from this guy, that he was running wild and he could shoot and kill at will. And nothing would happen to him. Now, they didn't make this stuff up, you know. They didn't exaggerate it. It happened. And the town kind of dissembled in the face of it. They kind of turned, they didn't turn on each other, but it was like the, it was like the preacher. If he terrorized someone and you went to, the, to help that person, then you were next. And so the town was in pretty bad shape when it happened, and they're still in pretty bad shape now. But let me just say something about, about the book itself. Um, as I traveled and, and you know, talked about the book, one of the topics that seemed to be as uh, much interest was how I got the story, because they were so tight. And what I told you was part of it. And so um, there is a I wrote a follow-up book, about 120 pages, called The Story Behind In Broad Daylight, which told the whole story of a lot of what we've been talking about, and I finally named the killer in there and so forth. That is included, in, in, uh, along with updates, a 25-year update, in a version of the book now that's out. I got the rights back from HarperCollins, and that's on Amazon. Uh, my feeling of what happened was that Del Clement, who owned the tavern uh, and was a drunk, uh, he, he was a young rancher type, um, and his tavern was 
almost always empty because people are so scared of macro they wouldn't go in there. They're in the they're in the tavern drinking. I think he is drinking himself, and he says, "I've had enough of this shit." Walks out the side door of the tavern, goes across the street stands in front of his truck when McElroy walks out. I, it was not a planned act. I mean, this that's one of the terribly, un, you're talking about the sympathy to the town. One of the terribly unfair things that happened was that it was, it was portrayed as a vigilante act in the sense that it was a group decision. You know, that's normally what vigilante implies. It wasn't. I mean, think about it. Those 45 to 50 witnesses, do you think they would have stood there and watched it if they knew what was going to happen, you know? I mean, they had no idea what was, what was, what was going to happen. And I think Clement just lost it, pulled out his rifle. Another guy pulled out the 22 and they blew his head off. Just like that. It was about maybe a minute's worth of contemplation at most uh, from thinking about it to, to actually blowing his, blowing his head off. Well, Harry, I'd, I'd like to talk to you all day long um, on your book. But, you know, I'd rather uh, my listeners buy the book. And again, the title is In Broad Daylight, A Murder in Skidmore, Missouri. Um, so tell my listeners, uh, do you have a website, some way they might be able to leave you an email, get in contact with you, etc.? I've got a website. It's uh, harrymclean.com. The only trick is it's M-A-C, which means that it's Scottish. If you, get, if you drop the A out, you'll never, you'll never find me. Uh, and there's still, there's a blog on there. It's not super active, but there's still a lot of people debating, oddly enough, debating the ethicalness of McElroy's lawyer who kept getting him off on all these cases. That's one of the things that, you know, that, that people are still on there and, and the lawyer's uh, children are now involved in this argument. So again, I want to thank Harry. It's been a fascinating time. I hope uh, my audience will pick up the book and the new book. And uh, I want to, uh, and you know, are you working on anything else right now? Are you working on any books? Uh, an I author, am. Right? Yeah. I'm, I'm, well, well let, me, let me just mention this. Um, your audience might find it interesting. Uh, my second book was uh, called Once Upon a Time, A True Story of Memory, Murder, and the Law. And it involved a woman in California who claimed to recover a repressed memory of her father murdering her playmate 20 years earlier. So it was this whole repressed memory phenomena or the early 90s. And it was a great trial, fascinating trial. The book was selected as a notable book of the year by the New York Times, so forth and so forth. But the point of it is that um, Showtime is doing a four part series on the book and it's called Memory Wars and it's due to be out next September or October. And I'm one of the lead narrators in it. Well, I certainly will be uh, looking for that. And I also want to mention, um, I, I don't think I've said it enough, that uh, In Broad Daylight uh, was uh, an Edgar Allan Poe Award winner uh, on publication. And that's no uh, small feat. So congratulations on that. Um, in the meantime, uh, this is being recorded during uh, COVID, and the vaccine is out. And I know you've mentioned to me before recording that even though uh, two feet of snow is <laughs> forecast to hit Denver, where you live, um, you are about to get your second shot and be fully vaccinated. So, Harry, this has been great. Um, well, thanks for having me. It's been a nice, interesting conversation. 
Of course, I hope you, my listeners, also uh, enjoyed uh, this conversation with Harry N. McLean. And I hope if you did, you will, of course, tell your friends. Uh, they can link to this uh, on any of the uh, podcast platforms out there. And you can also visit my website, which is www.murdermostfoul, all one word, no caps, no spaces, dot com. And there you can read a little bit about, uh, it's a little bit under construction now. I'm trying to uh, flesh out a little bit of uh, information on each of the podcasts I've done, a little background on them. But also the, on this website, you can link to my email and leave me comments, pros and con, plus uh, maybe an interesting case that I've never heard of that maybe I'll cover in a future episode. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy. But for God's sake... Don't murder anybody.